0: The Murder Mystery Podcast. The story unfolds each week. Will you guess the killer? On the Murder Mystery Podcast, it's The Parisian Contract by M. F. Kelleher. Read by the author. Episode 17 The Paris Le Grand Hotel buzzes with people. Pristine waiters and waitresses flit between the tables, populated by the well-heeled. The matress d'hôtel, in command of all she surveys, conducts and directs her staff, as they deal with the ebb and flow of customers, needing breakfast in one of the capital's finest places to stay. Guy arrives early, and waits to be placed at a table. He is led to a table for four, in front of a window that overlooks the Boulevard de Capuchin and he orders coffee. Jean-Luc arrives ten minutes later. A sticking plaster on his right temple. Been in the wars? Says Guy, smiling. I hit my head on a kitchen cabinet. He shakes his head, and they laugh together. How are things? Says Guy. Yeah, good. You? As ever, my life is very consistent. Look, while it's just the two of us, says Jean-Luc. How is that project going? Nearly there, says Guy. Any difficulties? Not that I can see, says Guy. All fairly straightforward. You should have a result in the next 24, maybe 48 hours. 24 would be good, says Jean-Luc. I'll ask, but slightly out of my control now. It's been set in motion. We are paying them, Guy, says the CEO. I understand that, but you know how these things are. Isn't it just a straight contract to deliver what we specify? Says Jean-Luc. They're just a supplier. Not sure that's how they see it, says Guy. Our cash, we call the shots. I get it. So why the delay? Says Jean-Luc. It's not like normal business transaction, is it? Do I need to get legal advice on it, he says. Not from Olivia, if that's what you're thinking, says Guy. I was thinking Constance Marchand, actually. She doesn't do anything for us, Jean-Luc. I know, says Jean-Luc. I wouldn't recommend that company, says Guy. Oh, says the CEO. Why is that? They've had some dubious connections in the past couple of years, says Guy. Dubious? How? Their clients are often, how can I say this, from areas of the economy that are not always above board. A waitress comes to the table. Your guest, gentlemen? They both stand. Richard, good to see you. You too, Jean-Luc. This is Guy Lanchester, my right-hand man, says Jean-Luc. Guy and Richard Carlyle shake hands, and they all sit. How was your journey, Richard? I came in yesterday, as a matter of fact. Needed to catch up on a few matters. They order food and talk in pleasantries for fifteen minutes. A waiter pours more coffee. There is a pause in their conversation, signalling a change of topic. Shall we talk about Alpha? asks Richard. Please, go ahead. As you know, my chief counsel, Miss Street, has been working on the detail of a recovery plan for a week, says Richard. We're hitting a backstop now, as we're close to having all the information we can get for you to make a decision about a way forward. The other men nod. We see it this way, continues Richard. Glenthrow overbid intentionally to stop the Montgomery offer dead in the water. Glenthrow had some information that allowed them to be aware of the scale of our numbers and the bid structure. I have spoken to the Alpha directors, and they are as much in the dark as we are. Their CEO has had conversations with all of the Alpha board members and is satisfied that none of them leaked information to Glenthrow. And we trust them, asks Guy. We do. I know the Alpha board, says Richard. We worked with them a few years ago on expansion funding and their kosher. Their great fear is that Glenthro would restructure them aggressively. So Alpha want us to succeed then, says Guy. Richard nods. Exactly that. They asked me to talk to you, Jean Luc, and explore overbids. How much are we talking? Small beer, I think, three to five million, replies Richard. Glenthrow can call on major lines of credit, says Guy. We can't stop them pitching a higher price. We can if the Alpha Board don't accept it. Why would they do that, says Jean-Luc? Long-term growth prospects are better with Montgomery, says Richard. And the restructure creates a risk for their entire operation. It hits their shareholder value targets. I've been briefing their alpha board on Glenthrow's history, and they're moving our way. Okay, says Jean-Luc, sounds like there's light at the end of the tunnel. What do we do about Glenthrow? asks Guy. What do you mean? says Jean-Luc. They received insider information, as far as we can tell. Can we use that as a lever? I don't see it, says Jean-Luc. ''I still think there's some potential,'' says Guy. ''What for?'' asks Jean-Luc. Guy pauses. ''Legal action,'' he says. ''Sue them for an overbid,'' says Jean-Luc, ''for insider trading.'' Jean-Luc is silent as he considers. ''Not my first priority, to be honest,'' he says, then turns to Richard. ''Can we just flag to the authorities and let them do the legwork?'' ''Of course,'' says Richard. ''Miss Street has some evidence. We can use that.'' Jean-Luc looks at his watch. ''Apologies, gentlemen, I need to go,'' he says, and raises his hand for the bill. ''I can get this, Jean-Luc,'' says Guy. Jean-Luc stands up. ''Richard, you can sort the credit lines for our new bid?'' Richard nods. They all shake hands and he walks off through the maze of tables to the exit. Captain Ferrault and a police sergeant sit across the table from Olivia in interview room 6B of the police judiciaire building. An old television screen and digital camera sit discarded against the end wall, an experiment with modern technology for the judiciaire that was abandoned after six months, as everyone still preferred writing on paper. They have been talking for half an hour, going over the details of Christopher's rearrest and information about his personal life to allow the Spanish prosecutors to assess his mental state and specify treatment for his addiction as part of his sentence structure. Olivia is doubtful that he can rehabilitate. Are you saying you don't support the idea of a formal treatment regime for your brother, mademoiselle? says Ferrand. No, I'm just not convinced that it'll have a long-term effect. That is not ours to judge, I think, mademoiselle, but Monsieur Street's opportunity to take, says Ferrand. Of course, Captain, she says. I think that's all our questions for now, mademoiselle. "'Can I ask you about some things, Captain? "'Go ahead, mademoiselle,' says Fagot. "'Could we talk privately?' she says. They both look at the sergeant, who realises they want him to go, and he packs up and leaves the room. "'How can I help?' "'I wanted to ask you if you had been notified of a missing person.' "'What's the name?' "'David Malneath," she says.' Veroe writes the name down on pad in front of him. And who is this person to you, mademoiselle? A friend, she lies. Normally only members of a family can be provided with information on missing persons. I just thought after my assisting you with Chris, you might be able to do something. The Capitaine nods politely. Wait here, mademoiselle. He gets up and pulls open the door of the interview room, which clicks shut behind him, leaving Olivia alone. She hasn't really thought about Chris clearly since yesterday in the bar. Her drive for the truth had won in a battle against the pull of her sibling love. She wants her old brother back, but she doesn't know if that is possible after all this. Fero returns. No, Mademoiselle Street, he says. David Malneath has not been reported missing. He may be dead, Captain. And you know this because. I don't know it. I was told it by a colleague, she says. Who was that? I'd rather not say. Did the colleague have evidence, Mademoiselle? says Ferreau. I think he does, Captain. "'Then they should provide that evidence,' says the policeman. "'I know enough about French criminal law, Captain, to know "'that he isn't obliged by law to provide it,' she says. "'Quite so. "'Do you think the death is in suspicious circumstances?' "'Possibly.' "'Then I would encourage you to encourage him to come forward,' says Fero. "'I will.' Captain, "'Was that all, mademoiselle?' "'Another matter, if you will,' she says. "'Do you have a British detective working here with you called Amy Mitchell?' "'I cannot give you details of police operations, mademoiselle Street.' "'It's just that I know her, and she said she was working in Paris, so I wondered if she was around.' Olivia is impressed by the speed of her own lying." Let me check, he says, and I will send you a message. Thank you, Capitaine. Mon plaisir, mademoiselle. A fine rain is falling on the people and the cars, in Rue de Saucere, when she reaches the main doors of the building. She has no umbrella, as she left the Fleur de Camille-branded one in the café on the day her laptop was nearly stolen so she walks to the main road and hails a taxi. She doesn't have a definitive plan on where she wants to go, so asks the driver to go to Champ des mars the wide open space that surrounds the Eiffel Tower. The cab drops her at the eastern end. The rain has stopped, and she walks past the École Militaire and into the parkland beyond with the tower directly ahead. She thinks through the case. Olivia has no idea what Richard may have been discussing with Madame Malnith and she doesn't want to ask him particularly. Normally, she is very confident to ask anyone anything but Richard is different. She treats him with kid gloves, she notices, but she doesn't know why. She also needs to talk to Jean-Luc The last time she saw him was the day he told her about his drug-dealing past. A message arrives in her phone. It's Guy inviting her to dinner. Her immediate thought is to accept. Then she stops herself. Olivia doesn't know where this is going, but she's also not sure that it matters. She returns to thinking about the case. The other problem is that she has not got enough from Max. She remembers that Richard gave her a new address for him, so she cuts south across the grass, hails a cab, and gives the driver her destination. As she leans back into the taxi, she replies yes to Guy's message. Max's new flat is on the Rue Charles Renouvier a road that borders the Père Lachaise Cemetery. Olivia knows the area well, as she and Ludo lived here at the start of their relationship, and she spent many hours pushing Poppy in her buggy, searching for the memorial of Oscar Wilde amongst the Victoriana of the graveyard. The cab driver drops her off. Max's block is half Belle Epoque with a modern extension, old and new, mirroring each other like past and future. The street is deserted. The high stone wall of the cemetery stands slightly lopsided at the end of the road. Max's flat is in the old half of the building, and she pushes a tall door from the roadway that gives access to the centre of the structure. Like a thousand similar buildings across Paris, an inner square of light strikes upwards from the cobbled surface under her feet to an open roof and the apartments sit around the empty core in perfect symmetry. Olivia climbs the stairs to the second floor. Max's front door and one other sit astride the corridor in balance, watching each other for a hundred years. She pulls the bell cord outside of his door, but there's no answer. She puts her ear to the door, trying to hear anything inside, but there's no sound. She tries the door, it's unlocked, and she steps over the threshold, into the void. The blinds are down in the large reception room where she stands. Light breaks in where the fabric has become worn over time. The room is beautifully decorated, in what seems to be the original design. Bookshelves line the back wall. A fireplace sits centrally, with dried flowers instead of a fire for the summer. Mahogany furniture provides a solid base, and lime green and pink fabrics pick out details to lighten the mood. No sound pervades the place. Her footsteps create the only life in the emptiness, She walks through to the bedroom. Max's body lies on the bed. A single tiny drop of dried blood on his left temple. Olivia approaches the side of the vast bed and looks down at his pale features. She remembers her last conversation with him on the rooftops of Paris when he had told her about his fear. "'Oh, Max!' she whispers. I'm so sorry. She sits in the silence, saturated in thoughts and memories. Minutes pass, and a church clock strikes the hour somewhere outside. The ringtone on her phone cracks the tranquility, and she is pulled out of her meditation. Mum? Hey, Poppy. What have you done? says her daughter. What? Did you grass up Uncle Chris to the police? Poppy, he had committed a crime. So you did grass him up? Poppy, I am a legal professional, says Olivia. Retaining my licence to operate depends on my not being involved with any criminal activity or aiding and abetting criminals. Don't give me that professional bollocks, mum. He's your brother, for God's sake. "'So you would rather he gets away with it because he's family,' says Olivia, her blood rising. "'Well, at least you could have not set a trap for him like you did,' says Poppy. "'Did Dad tell you this?' says Olivia. "'Uncle Chris called me from Spain.' "'He wouldn't have given himself up, Poppy.' "'It's not like he killed someone, is it?' says the girl. "'It's the law, Poppy.' If you disagree with it, become a politician and change it. That's how it works. All those laws were written centuries ago anyway. Don't be ridiculous. They change all the time. Yeah, that's right, mum. I'm the ridiculous one. The idea is ridiculous, not you, says Olivia. So you'd shot me too if I was arrested, would you? That's hypothetical. Yeah, but say I was. You'd call the police on me, wouldn't you? If there was evidence, you bloody would, you cow! Poppy, thanks, Mum, very clear indeed. The line goes dead. Olivia can't think straight. Too many emotions flood her brain. She can feel the anger wash over her as she grapples with the morality of what her daughter has just said. She screams out loud then the silence clings back around her head. Olivia closes her eyes and steadies herself against the wall where she stands next to Max's body. She stays still and alone for a time period that she can't determine. Eventually, her legal mind seeps back into her consciousness and she realises that there is a more urgent task than Poppy's disapproval that she needs to address. She looks around the place and starts to search the apartment to see if Max has left papers or information. His briefcase is on the table in the other room, and she goes through it. There are documents about the Montgomery bid for Alpha, and spreadsheets of numbers of cost projections for options that he had been considering, with his pencilled notes dotted across the pages. There are copies of emails between him and Richard, but none talk about anything untoward. There is no more in the case, and she returns to Max and looks around him to see if he had anything else. Beside him on the bed, half under the covers, is an envelope. She pours out the contents onto the bedspread. These papers are altogether different to the other documents. She reads the top one, it is scrawled notes from a meeting and not in Max's handwriting. The words are about Glenthrow. She flicks through the other sheets, all Glenthrow material. Emails from David Malneath to Grace Hartford mixed in with phone records of Malneath's business mobile. Olivia can see Malneath was in touch with Max regularly and in the week before Max disappeared, They talked three or four times every day. This aligns with Olivia's belief that Max had found out something and that he and Malneath had died because of that information. The final page is a set of notes. This time, it is definitely Max's writing. Olivia reads the words. 20 million. Time-dependent deal. Conigan Industries, GmbH. Not something that we would have chosen. True? Question mark. Critical that the proposal is confidential. Risk profiles need assessing. Restructure if this goes through? Question mark. Concerns. Partners' background. Unclear and may be the edge of legality. Cash. And effects on Carlyle reputation. Olivia bundles all of the papers together. And puts them back into the envelope, which she seals and takes with her. She has a last look around the bedroom. Her eyes end on Max for the final time. She pauses and her heavy eyelids blink slowly. Then she makes her way back out and down the stairs. She walks for ten minutes and finds a phone box. She calls the police and tells them anonymously about the dead body. She rings off, wipes the phone clean, and walks for half an hour before hailing a taxi back to her hotel.